Well, we come to the first of our sessions studying the extraordinary Book of Romans. Was that an announcement that was made for this class that Yeah. Oh, okay. Which is odd because this is the introduction, but technically the text starts on the 15th. Yeah, yeah. So I'm gone next week. I think they misunderstood that we're actually starting in verse 1 on the 15th. But the rest of you get to understand the why we're studying it and all the background, um, which I think is actually pretty critical in a book like this. Um, you know, true confession from a uh, teacher's standpoint, I've to use Pastor Jim's uh, comment, which by the way, yesterday Lisa said to me, isn't it gonna be interesting if Pastor Jim mentions the book of Romans in tomorrow's sermon? I said, he won't, he's gonna be on Ephesians or the church of Ephesus. And then he uses the study of Romans in one of his <laughs> illustrations. But I feel a bit like he did other than the fact that it's just all of you here but the book of Romans is intimidating. As a teacher, let me put it this way. Richard Longenecker, who's one of the great New Testament scholars of our era, wrote, Romans is probably the most difficult of all the New Testament letters to analyze and interpret. Great. Uh, Dr. Fitzmaier, who wrote the Anchor Bible Commentary, an 800-page commentary, uh, on this particular book, began his study approximately 40 years earlier by reading a French scholar's work in French, and that French scholar wrote, I'm going to get this wrong, I've tried, I've practiced it, Le premier contact fou escrossant. Can you say it? Les premiers contacts étaient écrasants. Oh, sure. <laughs> yeah. First yeah. contacts were crushing. First contact is crushing or overwhelming. Overwhelming. And this was from the commentator that he started his 40-year journey in writing his book. St. Augustine began writing a commentary on Romans and quit after verse 7 of chapter 1. <laughs> Seriously, he abandoned it because it was too difficult, the level of difficulty in what he was trying to deal with. Well, <laughs> what am I doing here? I mean, I have taught through Romans once before. It was to the high schoolers here at Camelback back in 1993. Uh, let's just say it was a fairly simplified version, uh, not what we try to do here. I own approximately 45 different commentaries on Romans. Uh, before I began, I had to sit there and go, which one of these am I not even going to bother looking at? Stick them in a box so I wouldn't feel guilty about sorting through them. And I started, I've been working on this kind of in a preliminary manner for months, anticipating this day would come when we start working into, you know, digging into it. So I thought, you know, there's a few things we need to understand about Romans 
as a letter, but I want to first set its place in church history. Some of these stories may be familiar to you, some of them may be brand new, or you may not have heard them for a while. But let's start in AD 386. A fellow named Aurelius Augustinus, who we know as Augustine. He was a North African man, a professor of rhetoric at Milan, Italy, and he was a follower of a false cult called Maniacism. Under conviction about his sins, yet he was resolved to follow Christ, he sat weeping in the garden of his friend Olympias, and suddenly heard a child on the other side of the fence singing, Tola Lega, Tola Lega, which in Latin means take up and read. He had never heard that song before, and so he took it as a word from God. <clears throat> that is something he should do. So he picked up a scroll at his friend's place that happened to contain a portion of the book of Romans. His eyes fell at random on Romans 13, verses 13 and 14, which read, Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and in jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. Augustine later wrote, No further would I read, nor had I any need. Indeed, at the end of this sentence, a clear light flooded my heart, and all the darkness of doubt vanished away. He was saved from his life of sexual immorality, and in that very moment, from one sentence in the book of Romans, the church received the great Augustine, one of its greatest theologians. Many years later, when he was refuting the heresy of Pelagius, Augustine did so by expounding the book of Romans. Fast forward 1,200 years. 1,200 years later, in November of 1515, there was a priest by the name of Martin Luther, an Augustinian monk. He was the professor of sacred theology at the Catholic University of Wittenberg. And to his students, he began to expound the epistle to the Romans. And from November of 1515 to the following September of 1516, so for 10 months, he lectured in the book of Romans. He daily spent himself in the understanding of that epistle. And as he prepared his lectures, he became more and more appreciative of the centrality of the Pauline doctrine of justification by faith. Now, Luther was a scrupulous monk, striving through fasting, prayer, and treatment of his body to find peace with God. He felt condemned because of the sins that he knew lurked in his heart, and as he poured over Scripture looking for an answer, he wrestled with Romans chapter 1, verse 17. Quote, For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. Luther later wrote, I greatly long to understand Paul's epistle to the Roman and nothing stood in the way but that one expression, the righteousness of God. 
Because I took it to mean that righteousness, whereby God is righteous and deals righteously in punishing the unrighteous. Night and day I pondered until I grasped the truth that the righteousness of God is that righteousness whereby through grace and sheer mercy he justifies us by faith. Thereupon I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise. The whole of scripture took on a new meaning. And whereas before the righteousness of God had filled me with hate, it now began to fill me inexpressibly with sweet love. That passage of Paul became to me the gateway to heaven. One verse. A year later, on October 31st, 1517, this small town monk, Martin Luther, marched up to the castle church at Wittenberg and nailed 95 theses to the door, thus starting the flame of the Reformation that split the Catholic and the Protestant churches. One verse. Now something else that Martin Luther had done is he translated the Greek and Hebrew into German so that the people could read the Bible, which was part of the Reformation, part of the sweep. Seven years after Wittenberg Door, the Wittenberg Door incident, you have a man by the name of William Tyndale. He was an English scholar who embraced Luther's stress on justification by faith, and he traveled to Wittenberg in 1524, and while there, began working on translating the New Testament into English. He later lived in Worms and Hamburg, and he completed the entire Old Testament in English. Tyndale could speak seven languages, was proficient in Hebrew and Greek. He was a priest whose intellectual gifts and the disciplined life could have taken him a long way in the church had he not had one compulsion to teach that English men and women the good news of justification by faith. Tyndale discovered the doctrine when he was reading Erasmus's Greek edition of the New Testament. And what better way to share this message than to put that message into English in the New Testament. By the way, he never finished his New Testament. He got about three quarters of the way through. Uh, in 1525, his New Testament began to emerge. The first translation from Greek into the English language. It was smuggled into England and received a less than enthusiastic response from the authorities. <laughs> King Henry VIII, Cardinal Wolseley, and Sir Thomas More were furious. It was said that More, quote, that it was not worthy to be called Christ's testament and neither Tyndale's own testament or the testament of his master Antichrist. Mm. William Tyndale, in his prologue to the Epistle of Romans, wrote this, I think every Christian should not only know Romans by rote, by memory, without the book, but also exercise himself therein ever more continually with the daily bread of the soul. In 1546, Tyndale was burned at the stake by the Catholic Church 
in Europe. That happened to be the same year that Martin Luther died. Fast forward 200 more years. John Wesley had formed a holy club at Oxford, striving to live in a manner pleasing to God. He even went to the United States to serve as a missionary in Georgia, and he failed miserably. Quote from his journals, Alas, I have a fair-weather Christianity. I went to America to convert the Indians, but who's going to convert me? In May 24, 1738, he went to a meeting in Aldersgate Street in London where someone was reading from the preface to Luther's commentary on Romans. Not the commentary, the preface. Wesley wrote in his journal, quote, at about a quarter before nine, while he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for my salvation. An assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. And that conversion was the spark that lit the 18th century revival that changed the history of England and the United States. You understand why I'm doing this exercise? What's the common thing in all of this? Is Romans. Chrysostom, one of the early church fathers who died in 407 AD, he had Romans read to him twice a week. I don't know when was the last time before I started doing this study that I've read through the book of Romans once much less twice a week. Luther later said, Romans is the chief part of the New Testament and the perfect gospel. John Calvin said, if, a, if someone understands it, he has a sure road open to him to the understanding of the whole of Scripture. The commentator Frederick Godet called Romans the cathedral of the Christian faith and that every spiritual revival in the church will be connected as effect and cause with a deeper understanding of this book. Samuel Coleridge called it the most profound work in existence. John Cairns of Scotland wrote, The gospel tide nowhere forms so many deep, dark pools where a neophyte might drown, as in the book of Romans. Aldolf Deisman wrote, Fire, holy fire, shows between the lines of Romans. This holy divine flame is what warms and penetrates us. The deep understanding of human misery, the terrible shuddering before the power of sin, yet at the same time the jubilant rejoicing of the redeemed child of God. This is what for all time assures to the Roman epistle a victorious sway over the hearts of men who are sinful and thirst for redemption. The letter will delight the greatest logician. The letter will captivate the mind of the consummate genius and bring tears to the humblest soul and refreshment to the simplest of us all.
the book gets ready, it will knock you down and then lift you up. It'll strip you naked and then clothe you with elegance. That's why we're doing this. Yeah, it happens to be the next book in our chronology. There's a reason for that. But it is that central book of the Christian faith. So I would say for the next few weeks, I don't know how many it's going to take us to do this. Um, it could be short, it could be long, it all depends on the themes that uh, come up as we work our way through it. But I will say that every time we come to a passage, that even if I slow it down and we only do two verses in a day, in a session, we cannot forget the context of the entire book. It's too easy to take Romans and go, oh, let's look at these, this one paragraph, pull it out and examine it, which is fine. But it always has to be put in the context of the entire piece. And one of the things that we have to do when you start a study of a book like Romans, you have to understand to whom it was being written. So, let's think of it this way. As we found out at the end of uh, Acts chapter 20, verse 3, last week, Paul, in the end of his third journey, he ends up in Corinth for three months. It says so, Acts 20, verse 3, he went to Corinth for three months. Pretty much everybody feels that he wintered there. It's the year probably between 57 and 58 AD, if you want to put it in historical context. And he, at that point, wrote this letter. <clears throat> you might, so what's the big deal? It took him three months. Goodness, what's, what a slacker. Uh, let me just challenge you to write something like this in three months. Uh, <laughs> just as a quick note, uh, statistically, there's only 432 verses in this thing. It's, it looks long. It is the longest of his letters, but it's really not that long. It's just complex in its phraseology and the depth that, into which it's being done. A couple things to think about. Number one, Paul had never visited Rome. So he's writing this letter to them, this extraordinary letter to people he'd never met. Now, as we discovered when we were going through the book of Colossians, technically Paul never visited Colossae either before he wrote the letter to Colossians. However, Laodicea is like two miles or three miles away from Colossae. He was in that same region. So in fact, there may have been bleed over from the Laodicean church into the Colossian church, very possible. There's no neighborhood to Rome. Look at your map in my handout, page one. I mean, the closest he has come to Rome, and you see Rome is in bold, right, kind of in the middle. The closest he's come is somewhere over in Macedonia on the eastern seaboard in Philippi. He never got within shouting distance 
or spear throwing distance. I mean, he was never close to Rome. And if you see, if you find Athens there, if you kind of look there in Greece, just a little bit to the left of Athens is Corinth. I love this map as a picture of the size of the Roman Empire. I mean, it is, it's approximately two million square miles. That's an awful lot of ground to police when you don't have airplanes or jeeps or tanks. The only way to police that amount of space is with mobile troops, which is what they did. They would go from place to place over time and conquer and expand as best they could. Rome itself was founded around 750 BC. Rumor has it that it was by two brothers named Romulus and Remus. <clears throat> and that's where we get the word Rome from, it's from Romulus. About 200 and some odd years later, it became a republic controlled by a senate, so they had some organization. And by 275 BC, they controlled all of Italy. That's a pretty central spot in controlling the commerce and the movement within the Mediterranean Sea. If you wanted to go from east to west, you basically had to go through Italy to get there. Now, if you look just south of Rome on your map on the African north coast, what town do you see that's familiar? Carthage. Carthage. There was a big war between Carthage and Rome for the control of the Mediterranean Sea. That went on for about 70 years. Now, just try to imagine being at war for 70 years. You know, every day it's on Twitter. <laughs> every day it's in your Facebook feed. For your entire life, you don't know a time in which you were not at war. This war, they finally were able to conquer Carthage and control the area. They it ultimately, by 60 BC, by the way, I'm doing a very quick history of Rome right here. Um, by 60 BC, Rome was controlled by three generals, Pompey, Crassus, and Julius Caesar. Of the three, Julius Caesar became more and more powerful, which caused, let's just say, jealousy. How best to put it? Pompey, you'll even, you'll even see a city named after him right under the, the uh, Rome city here. Pompey is the one who uh, pretty much controlled all of the Eastern Mediterranean, including Palestine. Uh, he brought in a bunch of uh, Jewish slaves in 63 BC into Rome after his conquering of the area. In 44 BC, Julius Caesar was assassinated at Tu Brute, the famous story. 
And then two men begin to fight for control of Rome, Mark Antony and Octavius. We know Mark Antony because of his affair with Cleopatra. Ultimately, Octavius won in 31 BC, so that war took only, civil war only took 13 years. Um, and it ended with Mark Antony and Cleopatra committing suicide and Octavian being put in charge and they changed his name to Augustus. So Augustus Caesar ruled for 44 years all the way to 14 AD. So in the time of the birth of Christ, Augustus Caesar was the emperor of Rome. During those 40 some odd years, and that's a long time, in this era, you know, with all the political backfighting and assassination attempts and all this other kind of stuff going on, his power was extraordinary to the point that the Senate even declared him to be deity. And they began building temples in his name. Augustus at first wasn't real excited about it, but yeah, okay, I, I, I'll go with that. I'll roll with that. I'll just let it happen. Because it pushed the Pax Augusta, or Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, the peace of Augustus, throughout the region. So you have pretty much from Spain, almost to Arabia, Iran, was under the control of one entity. In 14 AD, he was succeeded by Tiberius, then came Caligula, then came Claudius, and then Nero. That would give us the life of Paul, the life of Christ and the life of Paul. Augustus, Tiberius, Caligula, Claudius, and Nero. This is that succession, one after the other, uh, were the ones that controlled this empire and in this time. But that's the empire of Rome. I mean, there were a lot of advantages. If you think of Galatians when it said, when the time had fully come, Jesus came on, on the scene. Well, why? Why then? You know, why not now? Why didn't he just wait 2,000 more years and just show up in America? Because, you know, we deserve it, right? Uh, but no, Jesus came in Palestine as a Jew at this point. Well, if you watch the spread of the gospel later, it was because of this network and the ability to move between regions without fear. These were not warring factions between Greece and Asia and Italy and Illyricum or any of these other areas, you could move freely between them other than the, the typical um, ruffians in the, the hills. But there was a way to spread the word and move and have freedom to express it. And Rome's philosophy was, okay, as long as you pay your taxes, we'll leave you alone. Don't riot. Remember we talked about last week in Ephesus? Don't make a fuss. Just live your life, pay your taxes, 
know, we'll, we'll be fine. So let's look at this city of Rome itself. Now, I have a map, second page, which is very interesting. Uh, it actually comes from the ESV Study Bible. This particular map you will rarely find in any of your study or look, because this is a map of the buildings that were there when Paul was alive. There's one major building that's missing in this map that we think of when we think of Rome. What's the major building you, when you think of Rome? Colosseum. The Colosseum is not on this map. And I thought, well, that's not possible. I saw a movie once that had Rome in it, and there was a Colosseum, and there was biblical people in it. Well, that movie was wrong. I had to look it up. Lisa and I were actually talking about So when was the Colosseum built? The Colosseum was not built until 72 AD by Vespasian, the successor to Nero. So I, I found another map, which I did not give you, but it's a much later map of Rome with all the famous buildings in it. I mean, it's like they went on a binge over a two or three hundred year period that every emperor who was worth his salt built something with his name on it. So it feels simple when you see this particular uh, uh, expression of Rome uh, in 60 AD, but it was still rather impressive. In fact, there are estimates that at the time of Paul, there was between one and two million people in this city. And this city's square miles is less than half the size of Tempe. So think of Tempe. Think of the Arizona State campus and maybe triple it. And that's Rome. Even has a Colosseum in it. <laughs> Oh no, that's Gamage. Um, actually, it was patterned after that idea, at least on the outside. But two million people in that small space? So I was beginning to look up some history, just out of morbid curiosity in my typical rabbit trail movements. I started thinking about the fire that destroyed part of Rome when Nero was in charge many years later, 64 AD. That fire lasted five days. The city of Rome was divided into 14 districts. The fire started in the central district, if you were to look at this map, right above the capital. And so that vast area that seems to be open was full of homes and these homes are made out of clay and wood timber and are like kindling for a fire. Now Augustus had set up a fire brigade back in his day. All that meant it was a bunch of people with buckets who would run to the local aqueduct and turn on a spigot and fill buckets and then pass them for however long it took to get to wherever the fire was. 
And in the summertime, which is when that fire happened, the aqueducts ran thin. They were not as full. And the nobles tended to siphon off water from the aqueduct and the reservoirs for their own lush estates. So when that fire occurred, think of the Chicago fire in 19, or was it six? No, eight, whenever it was. It just ravaged through the city, just destroyed it. Of the 14 districts in, in Nero's time, three of them were burnt to the ground. Literally laid waste. Which is why there was land to build the Colosseum. They just simply went, up, oh, you know, eminent domain, boom, let's build a building here. It's empty anyway, nobody's living here. They're all dead, we don't care. You have to remember, 70% of the population were slaves. They were property. It didn't matter if they burned up. Oh, we can talk about Nero. I read quite a bit about him. Um, but that's just giving you a context of this city. So the question comes, were there Jews in the city? And if so, how many? We do know that in 160 BC, so this is a long time before this era that I'm talking about, almost 200 years earlier, or 100 years earlier, sorry. Well, actually, almost 200, correct. Uh, Judas Maccabees sent envoys from Israel to Rome to quote, and this is from 1 Maccabees, so I'm not making this one up, to establish an alliance and establish peace with Rome. If you ever wonder how Rome ended up in Palestine, they were invited. They were not conquered. Rome didn't show up with their boats one day and decide to attack. Palestine, or Israel, was under conquering pressure from the east, from the Persians. The Maccabees were in civil war, fighting with each other, and they appealed to Rome as a partner. If you send us troops, we'll send you tribute. We'll send you some money. We'll create a partnership. And they invited the Romans into their backyard to set up garrisons. So later, it was very easy for them to just turn up the heat a little bit and do whatever they wanted to do. And ultimately, Pompey decided to attack Jerusalem and took slaves. But the Senate agreed to this uh, alliance and they established the nation of Jews. And that's in 160 BC. By the first century, there was at least 50,000 Jews in Rome that we can establish based on um, information discovered in catacombs and scroll and uh, inscriptions on the written on the walls. And you think about it, it's not like they had journals or pieces of paper to write things on, so they just wrote on the walls and kept their records on the walls, and that's why we're able to find them now. In 70 AD, 
Okay, I'm bouncing around here, I'm sorry, but just to give you a concept, when Jerusalem was destroyed by Titus, he took 97,000 slaves, Jewish slaves, and brought them to Rome as part of his parade. So the Jewish population in Rome was fairly well established. There were 13 synagogues that we can identify in Rome at the time of the New Testament. So 14 districts, probably one synagogue per district, if you think about it that way. That would make sense. And they were very organized. I found in one common, common commentary, there were, he even gave me all the names of the different synagogues because they all had names. And then who was in charge? And they had a hierarchy between them. You know, so they would be coordinated and not be fighting each other for members. That sound familiar? <laughs> there was a sharing of their community. But as a community, they also had some problems. And in 49 AD, which we know from the book of Acts and also from uh, archaeological history and some writings of the Romans, Emperor Claudius kicked all the Jews out of Rome, 100% of them, because they were making a fuss over someone named Crestus, C-H-R-E-S-T-U-S. All you have to do is change a couple letters and you have the word Christos, and Crestus was actually a more common um, slave name and so they figured that the Roman historian who wrote Crestus actually meant Christos that the Jews were fussing with the Gentiles or with the Jewish Christians in Rome and were making such noise remember Rome doesn't like riots that Claudius was just fed up and just kicked them all out which is why we have Priscilla and Aquila in Corinth because they were from Rome they came down and that's when they met Paul, stayed with Paul for a while, and then later went back to Rome. So here's a question, something I'd never considered before. If you have a church, which by the way, we're not sure when the church was established in Rome. We can guess. It's in Acts chapter two, you have Pentecost. And they list all these different cities of places where people were from that were there. And it said it included visitors from Rome. So these people were imbued by the power of the Holy Spirit, went back to Rome, established communities, began preaching the gospel as they understood it to the Jewish believers in the synagogues, which started fighting followers and those that were fighting against it. And here you had, you know, 10 or 12, 15 years later, you've got the emperor saying, just get rid of them all. Just kick them out. We can't kill them with impunity. Not with, we want to have a lot of problems here. Let's just get rid of them. So what happens to the Gentile Christians that are left behind? What's the makeup of the church in Rome in 49 AD? It's all Gentiles, and probably most of them are slaves. 
So, when Claudius died five years later, that ban was lifted. And the Jews began coming back to the city. So, let's imagine a situation where I'm in charge of the community, the house church or whatever, in the Camelback region, but I'm a Jew. And Tom here is a Gentile, but he and I are buddies, you know, it's okay. You know, we, we work together, we haven't warred about anything for at least a week. You know, we're, we're fine, but I get kicked out of town. I mean, I'm stuck on a rail and said goodbye. Well, who are you going to put in charge? Well, put him in charge. Okay, this is the year 2022. In 2027, I show up. Hey, Tom, I want my job back. I, I, I'm just, it was the concept in thinking of this dynamic was going on in this church, in this community that Paul is writing to. It's not specifically alluded to in this letter. He doesn't talk about controversy per se between people like he does in the Corinthian church, in the letter to the Corinthians and some of the other letters. He gets very specific. Here, it's more theologically the theological underpinning of what you, why unity is important. But this is why. You had the leaders were kicked out. The Gentiles, okay, well, we're still at church. You know, sorry, Steve's gone, but, you know, good riddance. And, uh, you know, we can, it's a whole new day. Uh, we can do what we want now. We don't, that demigod, we don't want him around. Um, I'm being facetious, but there's a dynamic a relational dynamic in the people that I'm not sure we think about when we come to looking at Rome itself. We do know that the church was established. We do know that Peter did not start the church in Rome, despite what the Roman Catholic Church teaches. He wasn't there that early. It wouldn't make sense because you have Pentecost, then you have, I think it's in Acts 12, it mentions that Peter went somewhere, but then he's back in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 18, where there's that conflict and that discussion of law versus grace. So Peter wasn't in Rome at that time, so he didn't go there and establish the church. Secondly, in Romans 16, where, in 15 and 16, where Paul makes all these greetings and these names a whole bunch of people, he doesn't name Peter. And if Peter were in charge, he would have said something. That would have been a big oversight. Oops, sorry, need to send him a Hallmark card apologizing. Uh, no, I don't think that happened. Um, it's not to say Peter never was there, because it's most likely he did go there. But at what point, we're not sure. But he didn't found the church there. And neither did Paul. Paul hadn't gone there yet. But he knew people who had been there. He probably got an entire rundown of the inner workings of the Roman church from Priscilla and Aquila. 
who were theologically sound, remember they're the ones that corrected Apollos when he was preaching the baptism of John. So you have two very strong leaders who say, yeah, well, here's, you know, you know here, here, here's the rundown of what's going on in the Roman church from what we can tell. If you go to, um, in Acts itself, this is much later when Paul actually ends up in Rome, probably uh, as much, much as two to three years later. Sorry to interrupt, just wanted to give a quick wave. This is Simon. Hey, Simon. Hi, Simon. He's our missionary from Rwanda. He'll be around after if anyone wants to Very good. <laughs> I think I've seen most of you before. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> nice to see you. Good to see you, sir. Sorry to interrupt. Oh, thank you. Thank you, thank you very much. <laughs> so in Acts chapter 28, when Paul actually comes to Rome after this long journey, which we'll talk about whenever we get there, um, in verse 15, verse 14, it says, And so we came to Rome, and the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the forum of Appius and three taverns to meet us. Which means there were Christians in Rome who knew about Paul and came to greet him. And then later in verse 21, it says, And they said to him, We've received no letters from Judea about you. And none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. So there wasn't even much news at that point about Paul. They knew of him. They had this letter. So he was known to the people of the Church of Rome because of this letter. And they were probably looking forward to him coming. Now it's interesting, in scholarship circles, the, often the... Uh, Veracity or the authorship of a book of the New Testament is challenged. Romans is rarely, if ever, challenged as being written by Paul. Even it has to be the most liberal, out left field whack job who says Paul didn't write Romans. Even some that lean heavily into liberal theology say, oh, there's no question he wrote it. Okay, well that's interesting. It's one of the, it's the least challenged of all of Paul's writings. In the earliest church fathers, we have Clement, Ignatius, Tertullian, and Origen, and Eusebius all praised the book of Romans and mentioned Paul as being the author. It was included from the very beginning and the lists of the canon, the books in the New Testament, it's in, from the very beginning, it was never a question that it should be in the collection. It's interesting, I have even made this statement before and I'm, I'm realizing that that's an incorrect statement. I have said that the Book of Romans is like a systematic theology because it reads like one. It's very theological, very in-depth, but it's not a systematic theology for the simple reason systematic theology as a discipline covers all of the doctrines and there's no eschatology, no end times discussion in Romans. There's very little ecclesiology about the nature of the church and how it's set up. It's mentioned, but it's not a fully 
expanded thing, which you find in some of the other letters. But God, man, sin, salvation, very, very, very clear. So turn to your handout to page three. I don't necessarily want to read all of these, but you can at your own leisure. I'm sorry, page four. Look at page four first. So when it says questions about Romans. You'll notice from the very bottom, I pulled this from one of John MacArthur's sermons on Romans. He went on a riff and just rattled off from Romans chapter one to Romans chapter 16 all of the questions that are answered in the book of Romans. And so I worked through his list. I rewrote some of them, adapted a few of them. Um, But you go through this and you realize that salvation, justification, sanctification, election, forgiveness, glorification, they're all covered in this book. If you come away with an understanding from the book of Romans... You have an understanding of all of theology and how God has provided for our salvation. It's very clear here. We'll turn to the next page. This is one I had fun putting together. Spent a ridiculous amount of time typing this up. And of course, I have now found my 17 typos because I looked more carefully at it after I printed it out. Let's start with the top half. These are the significant words that are used in the book of Romans. Sorry, I have to go back a page. Sorry, I put them in the wrong order. Significant words used in Romans. These are the top 10 most used Theological words, I don't, didn't, you know, we didn't count the word the, or a, or and. These are theological words. Notice how often God is used. God is, appears in every single chapter of the book of Romans. All 16 of them. Notice that the second most used word is the law which means that discussion with the Jewish believers there who are struggling with understanding how does the law and grace come together in the area of righteousness. We're we're confused. I mean, he has written about this in the book of Galatians. You can almost see the, the, the seeds that were planted in the expression of it that have this full flower and full tree oak trees grew up out of those planting here in the book of Romans. But then you have Christ, number three, Lord, number five, Jesus, number seven, and Spirit, number nine. 75% of the book of Romans contains an explicit reference to the Father, Son, or the Holy Spirit. It's saturated with God. 
These 10 words, or 326 of them, are used in the 433 verses. You almost have to kind of step back and go, oh, wow. I've never thought of this that way before. The word Christ is mentioned in every chapter except chapter 4. And in chapter 4, he uses the word Jesus. So, you know, he basically, it's in every chapter. Then look down to the second half of that page, and you find the uses of the Old Testament in Romans. 76 times an Old Testament verse is either quoted, paraphrased, or alluded to. A full 20% of the text of Romans is Old Testament literature. If anyone, there's one rather famous mega church preacher who's out there saying this right now, but if anyone says, don't bother with the Old Testament, they don't understand the book of Romans either. Or as Lisa and I were talking about this, they also don't understand the book of Hebrews. I mean, look at this list. Every chapter, except chapter 16, seemingly, I guess, do I, am I missing one here? No, I think uh, chapter 14 doesn't have a, a quote. But you look at chapter 9 and chapter 10, it's just full. And when you open up your Bible and you start looking at it, and you'll see the little footnotes or the little you know, doodads in your scripture pointing to other verses, you start realizing these passages he's pulling from his Old Testament rabbinical teaching and presenting the gospel of God using the Old Testament to do it. But what blew me away when I started looking at this even more carefully is the last paragraph that I wrote at the bottom of the page. If we include direct quotes, paraphrase quotes, clear allusions, Paul uses in the book of Romans, he uses Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, 2 Samuel, 1 King, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Hosea, Joel, Nahum, Habakkuk, and Malachi. Wow. He makes allusions to Adam, Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Rebecca, Esau, Jacob, Benjamin, Moses, Jesse, David, and Elijah. The book of Romans is a textbook of the Old Testament. It is the foundation upon which the gospel is built and helps us understand the story of God's redemption from creation to the end of time. Because if you just start with Matthew, which is, I'm not going to say you can't, but you're not really going to fully understand if all you do is read the New Testament. I still remember one of the uh, uh, 
side notes that Tom you used in one of your sermons. You said, take your Bible up, up you know, and, and close it, and then look where all the thumb marks are on your Bible. And I'll bet your Old Testament is pristine. Mm. Because all you've done is focus on the New Testament. Maybe we need to look at the other two-thirds of this book. And it's so true. It's so true. So when we actually start digging in and diving into these passages, we're going to be going back to the Old Testament over and over and over and over again. 75 times minimum. We were going we're gonna to go back to the Old Testament and see the foundation upon which Paul is saying, see how God works? He establishes it here and opens it up for the glory of God here. It's extraordinary. The last thing was the, uh, the chart that I found. There are so many different outlines of the book of Romans. I mean, I mentioned I have 45 commentaries, which means I have 45 different outlines because they can't copy each other. So they all have to look <coughs> unique. Um, some are extremely creative. Some are, I found one that was 16 pages long. Their outline went, why don't you just write a commentary? Oh, you are. Uh, but it was so detailed as to just be a blur and a blizzard of information. This particular one I found on a website called versebyverseministry.org. You can see their uh, logo up in the upper right, left-hand corner. I actually like this uh, setup because it shows a progression in the, uh, the nature of the material and how it's grouped. If you were to see this online or in a PDF, it'd be, be in color. I didn't print it in color. And it's even the, uh, the, the bars on the left side of each section are different colors to really help you group it. But if you look about it, you've got starting in chapter 1, verse 18 through 321, you have arguments against paganism, moralism, nomianism, and Judaism. Now the Judaism statement, I went, ah, okay, that's a little bit of a stretch for an outline, but it works. I mean, it's there, but it's not really what the argument is. But then you have the righteousness of God, Old Testament proofs, and the sufficiency. Then you have the consequences of the spirit, the flesh, and the security of God's salvation or his righteousness. And then chapters 9 through 11, which gets a lot of controversy. And what do we do with Israel as Christians? Should we be supporting them or should we not? Well, Romans chapter 9 through 11, depending on how you interpret it, can argue one way or the other. Um, I have one of those, uh, the four views books that we've talked about. There's one on chapters 9 through 11. And you've got four brilliant scholars all standing up going, this is the right way. And the other three going, nope, nope, nope. Second guy stands up, this is the right way. And the other three go, nope, nope, nope. And the third guy stands up, this is the right way. Nope, nope, nope. And they do this for the entire book. It's absolutely confusing and wonderful because these are guys who respect each other but they interpret these passages differently then you have sections 12 and 13 all about righteousness chapter 14 about grace and then 15 and 16 
ultimately, Paul was trying to set up a reconnection to these people in Rome. So when he showed up, he wasn't a stranger. And they would give him the support if he, because remember, his plan was to go where? Spain. And if you're going to go somewhere into the hinterlands, you're going to want to have a headquarters to come back to. And it would make sense because the roads are built across that top part uh, between Italy and Spain. Very easy to get back and forth. And so it would be, make sense that you would have a headquarters that he would get there. Um, I'm going to end with a quote from Jeff Thomas. Jeff Thomas wrote, and it's spelled G-E-O-F-F, so the right way. (laughs) The British way. This letter is old and primitive. We have come of age and we need to grow up, is what some people say. Times have changed, and we've made many scientific and technological pro- pro- made such technological progress. Surely we must have come up with a more adequate way of salvation, is what some people say. The trouble is, is these, the trouble is that all of these objections and achievements, seductive as they are, do not, in the end, address our most fundamental problem. We are hunger, we hunger for a universe in which we matter, in which what we do and who we are has a larger importance. Without that, we're restless and dissatisfied no matter how comfortable and secure we manage to make our earthly lives. We're as helpless to become truly better people by our own wits and decisions as we ever were. I'm saying, hold fast to the gospel found in this letter to Romans. You see, it doesn't matter whether this genuine gospel of Christ is easy or hard, whether it fails to satisfy our curiosity and it cannot answer our contemporary questions, refuses to submit to our efforts to nail it down, or declines to put on together a modern dress. The only thing that matters is the gospel is true. It is a fact that our ultimate help comes from one place alone, from Calvary. The other alternatives show themselves again and again to fail. They abandon us in our moral impotence and final futility. There is no other gospel, no other truly good news than that Jesus Christ was born of Mary, lived and died, rose again for our salvation to save us from our sins, to remake us at last to be like him and give us the sure hope of a new heaven and a new earth and of us being with him forever. There is no other gospel like this. This salvation is by grace, by God's free gift of Jesus Christ. The gospel of Romans is easy enough to be available to the worst, most broken, and most helpless sinner who knows he has no righteousness to offer God, no hope of making himself better, indeed nothing at all that he can do for himself. The letter is hard enough, on the other hand, to challenge the most successful person's illusions about being in control of their own life. It's hard enough in its demands that we live lives of service rather than seeking to be served. It's hard enough in its clear-eyed view of our relentless sinfulness. 
The letter to the Roman remains up to date in addressing the perennial human need for meaning in a universe that seems to run on blind indifference to the hopes and fears of its occupants. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for our time together, for giving us a chance as a, a small group to look at this extraordinary letter that you have left for us for today, for this time. Despite it seemingly hard and at the same time rather simple, we really look forward to digging in and to seeing the message that you have given to us through these words. In Jesus' name, amen.